Welcome to Film Fight Club. It is the Sydney Film Festival. This is our special Sydney Film Festival coverage. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. I'm eating chicken pies right now. And it smells great. Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Smells great, Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans is here at your service. <laughs> you should definitely go by that all the time. And we have producer from 2SCR, Stephen Hill. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us and having us... Yep. Thank you, getting decaffeinated at the moment. I had so much coffee just to keep myself perking up for all those sessions and keeping the mind active. Yes, it's been a, it's, it's a real sort of exp, real kaleidoscopic experience of, you know, bounding across all these different narratives. And yeah, so it can get quite confusing when you've said about 20, 25 yeah. <laughs> And they all kind of bled together. And that's, that is the Sydney Film Festival diet, crazy films and just Starbucks and all that from around the corner. I'll say that it, it speaks to the quality of this year's festival that I'm not blurring the plots together, which I have been known to do in previous years. Yeah, that's, it's happened to me it happened to you once, but no, I corrected myself, it's all good. So we are talking about everything that is at the festival. We are coming to you from the City Film Festival Hub, and we also will be doing interviews throughout the festival. Arga will be up on the uh, Celioid Dreams page, which we'll be talking about later in the program, and a few of us have been conducting interviews throughout the program. Yeah, um, you'll have from me uh, tomorrow or Thursday, depending on when they go to air, um, sorry, today or tomorrow or Friday. It's, it's all a bit up in the air at the moment as things tend to become festival time. We've lost track and completely track of time and space. Yeah, but Penek Ratnarung, one of my favorite filmmakers, um, I have an interview with him for Samoy Song coming up, as well as um, Peng Fei Song, director of The Taste of Rice Flour, which I also recommend, and a bunch of others. But yeah, what other interviews have you guys been doing? I've got the two Indian films from the program, so Kabir Singh Chaudhary's Mesampur, which is first screening on Thursday night, and also Nandita Das Khan film Monto, which is premiering on Saturday on the state. Interview with her as well. So you can look at those interviews and, and more on the Cellular Dreams page. However, we are talking about all the films we've seen, so let's get to it. The first one, straight off the rank, we've, or some of us have just seen it, and that is one of the Khan led editions, Shoplifters. Yes, it's the Palm Door winning film, first time after many films in competition for Hirokazu Kuraeda, who is one of the most consistent in quality and subject matter directors uh, working in Japan or in world cinema today, I would say. Um, he always makes films, or almost always makes films, about family dynamics. And in this film, he approaches that from a different angle and I think is asking um, questions about what really is it that makes a family. It's a really interesting film. And uh, I need to point this out mainly because at the time that this film came to me in this Sydney Fest lineup, I've been seeing a lot of heavy films. And I think this film was just the right blend of emotional, tonal, uh, you know, engagement, and a bit of lightness of touch. And it's also very kind of emotionally resonant. And it had that kind of breezy quality to it, which I really appreciated because I've been seeing a lot of depressing movies. Yeah, I mean, we saw One Day earlier today, which was a movie about how depressing it is to have a family and kids. So it was nice to see today a a movie about how great it is to have a family and kids that was... That didn't seem cloying and sentimental. I think it seemed very honest and very well observed from the way that people are, the way that families work. And as Virat spoke about, it has a real lightness of touch. But as it goes on, it goes in a heavier direction, which sneaks up on you. I think the um, it's so beautifully observed and so delicate that it surprises you with how involved you are with these characters in this story when the when the film takes a serious turn and you're suddenly worried about the consequences for all of these characters i think it's masterful storytelling so that is shoplifters we are doing very quick button reviews of all these films because we do have a lot to cover however come the cinematic release of a number of these we will be doing some in more depth next is three identical strangers a a new documentary focused on exactly that um three young men who found out late in life that they were actually related born on the same day july 12 1961 half the films about their foibles and just how they are similar and the latter half is how they came to be separated at the age of six months and some quite shocking events i've got to say this film is one of the better documentaries I've seen. It's a very agitated documentary. It can have you angry and infuriated, but also fascinated with uh, the story that is told um, quite painstakingly and quite well. Um, I will say that the interest in the documentary is certainly more the particular story, which is just so novel, versus uh, any particular aspect of how the documentary was told. We've seen some documentaries, documentarians insert themselves documentaries really well, in Rock Bull, for instance. This was much more set back and more traditional, but I think the most interesting part of this by far is the story itself. 
Yeah, when it started out, I was actually kind of irritated by the really flashy TV style of filmmaking that we see in the first five minutes or so, which settles down. Um, the story is incredible, as Glenn alluded to. I said that right. Um, yeah, I was very much involved in this. I think it's, it is quite well told, though, um, even though it's not an especially flashy style, though, because, again, I was drawn in with this film, and uh, you're, the darker turns that the story takes later on are alluded to, just enough to prepare you, but still come as a surprise. So I think there still is some very good storytelling going on by the filmmaker. I would have to disagree with both of you. I found that the premise of this film was way more interesting than the actual movie itself. I found the actual way the story is told quite flat and the pacing was quite monotonous and I really didn't feel it engaged at any point. And I really feel in pairing back a lot of dramatic tension, it robbed the film of any kind of personality. It just made it into a very kind of played documentary, which made me feel just disinterested and disengaged. I feel they could have gone into some more detail with um, the interviews of some of the brothers and some of those surrounding them. Um, there were some passing interesting interviews with those who were um, sort of to the side involved in some of the more darker aspects. I feel we could have gone into much more detail. Unfortunately, some of the people who were more involved in the story um, were either unable or unwilling to give interviews. Um, but, so I feel, I think they did... They could have potentially done a lot better with the material, but I think they did relatively well. That is Three Identical Strangers. The next one we are talking about, we all saw last night at the State Theatre. You'll never really hear the new, the second Joaquin Phoenix film from the festival. What did we think? I thought this was just a great time at the movies. Um, it's basically about a gun-for-hire guy who has really serious PTSD. Um, it's directed by Lynn Ramsey, and she brings her usual kind of um, fast editing, surreal touches in order to illustrate the living nightmare that is his life. But at the same time, there are a lot of darkly humorous touches and there's a real propulsive energy that makes this just satisfying and effective as an action thriller. It's a story about this, this guy having to rescue a, a girl from sex trafficking. Um, think John Wick, but with an art house sensibility. It, it's a really interesting movie, and I think Joaquin Phoenix is nailing it out of the park in this festival with both his roles, with Don't Worry, You Won't Get Far and Further Now in You Know You Were Never Really Here. And it's really interesting how he's able to, because essentially, if you look at it in both movies, he's playing a similar kind of character and a similar kind of sensibility, and yet he brings something radically different to it, especially in this kind of role, which you don't see Joaquin Phoenix as an action figure. Like, that's not something that comes to your mind when you think about Joaquin Phoenix, but he really sells this kind of role because... So there's something very chameleon-like about his sensibility where you it's its weird. He's, he's got a second win now. It's like he can be the new kind of Keanu Reeves of the action world. Uh, now, I'm not going to really add anything because I agree with everything that's been said. The one thing I will say, though, is my actual favorite aspect of the film, and it's gone unmentioned, is the incredible score oh, from Johnny man, Greenwood so of Radiohead. Uh, he did Phantom Thread. He was probably robbed of an Oscar. I think he will be nominated and probably should get it this year. Look, there, there, there's this beautiful emotion, emotive string music as well as this propound... <laughs> propulsive pounding dance music beat um, yeah incredible score yeah I've been listening to the soundtrack today The Hunt uh, is just incredible from this particular score it's, it's my second favourite score I think of all the films uh, my favourite score was Piercing which featured an eclectic soundtrack out of like Suspiria and other kind of movies but this one comes really close but I think Piercing soundtrack really surprised me so that was You're Never Really Here. We'll likely get a cinematic release. The next film, the one I've been looking forward to talking about with this crew, is A Vigilante. Yeah, interestingly, we've got two films in a row about violent vigilantes directed by female filmmakers. Yes, we do. This is starring, well, a number of interesting people, but a very kind of small cast. You have Olivia Wilde of House Fam and other films. She is, but there are essentially, as I see it, two stories in this film. One is a classic vigilante thriller, and the other is a more personal story regarding her history. It's a very intense thriller. I felt that I appreciated this film, having said that I could have seen either of these stories told separately in a standalone film and enjoyed it just as much, if not more. I absolutely hated this film. Um, I thought there was barely anything to it. I thought it was a, a very simple story about Batman going around saving um, women from being abused. 
that tries to create some kind of depth or empathy with the character by interspersing scenes of a circle for abused women telling their stories made in an incredibly manipulative way where whenever this woman or any of the other women tells their story we have to cut to every other woman in the in the group in close up with a tear rolling down their face just so that we get the idea that this is sad and you, you know to create empathy um, it then leads into uh, you know a really cliched amateurish action thriller ending that just feels like it cheapens the themes that this film was about I, I mean, why does why does this movie exist? Like, remind me again, because what's the point of this movie? This is actually, like, cheating the audience in a very essentialist way, which just angered me to death. Like, I was actually physically angry at this movie, which I think most movies don't make me physically angry. But this movie made me physically angry because of how it uses a very sort of real, nuanced idea of sexual assault in a very trivial way. It actually trivializes the experience of sexual assault in a very emotionally manipulative sense where you have you know, Olivia Wilde's character who there's no essential backstory or even elements of where you can humanize any of these elements. They're just functioning as pure narrative arc and threads to move the story along. And it's really, really, really annoying. Yeah, um, it's funny Virat said... Uh, why you know does this exist? Because while I was watching, I actually thought and said out loud to Schnelson next to me, "Why am I watching this movie?" But um, Glenn will disagree with us because he said that this was exponentially better than our next film, which I can't believe exists, which is Transit. Uh, now, Stephen, we were talking about this before. I have been trying. I'm lost as to why this has got the reception it has. Um, maybe you could explain to me what did you think of what was Transit and what did you think of it. Well, I mean, it's a very much it's another Christopher Penzold um, Holocaust drama. Um, we saw two years ago, made an excellent film called Phoenix. Has a lot of interesting meta references, but I really was just fascinated by how he used this historical Holocaust um, thing of sort of the, the roundup in um, France as the Vichy government, sort of the claws of the Vichy government, are sort of um, pursuing these characters. Um, how he mixed their sort of their past with a sort of contemporary feel. So you have these. Um, he didn't sort of situate it in 1940s um, Paris and Marseille. We have it very much a sort of contemporary Marseille. And I thought that was really interesting because it had that sort of idea of transit, that sort of transitory existence of refugees. And that's very contempt- con- contemporaneous with, you know, the way that um, just the, 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 the uncertain legality status of, of refugees and they only have these sort of short transit um, Transit visits is just inhibiting them as human beings to be able to actually connect with the community, be able to connect for to to actually you know develop the relationships, and I think that sort of that transitory thing is just a really interesting thing that I think really sustained the fact that the characters just are continually trying to, to to engage with each other, but they're just distanced by the actual sort of social structure that's around it. And I love the way that the characters in this are sort of trying to create or forcing relationships between each other into existence because that's all that they have. Um, they've been robbed of so much of their identity or so much ability to build a life for themselves. Um, I thought the love triangle of sorts that comes up in this film is, is really interesting and really sad. And um, the, I think the film did a great job of representing a situation where there's no right choice and it, it just kind of feels like the walls are closing in. What did you think of it, Varad? It's really interesting in that sense. I, I didn't I didn't like it as much as uh, Stephen did or hate it as much as Glenn did, so I'm kind of in the middle. But what I really did in, enjoy about this is a really interesting sense of temporar- uh, temporary kind of existence where people only exist insofar as they're looking for some kind of certainty in their identity. But yet the protagonist in that sense is basically, firstly, a replacement father for someone and then becomes a replacement husband. So it's this idea of what actually becomes permanence in this movie is quite an interesting concept. But my favourite scene in this movie is somewhere in the middle about the woman with the dogs and her character is actually very essential to a very real emotional connect and the real consequences of what this kind of existence might lead to. Okay, I won't say I hated this film. I'd say I was bored by it. I am... The performances in this film, in particular the main actor, were not to any extent compelling. In terms of the identity crisis within this film, we've seen this done better in many films, including the director's last effort, Phoenix, which was a decent film, particularly which picked up to a great degree towards the end. In terms of the conceit of this film, which set the World War II crisis and World War II crises in contemporary times to reflect the current refugee crisis, I feel that um, we... 
there have been many films, Casablanca chief among them, which have dealt with specifically this issue of transit visas and these refugee crises, which are still abundantly reflective of our time. I don't feel you need to set um, uh, this sort of film in this era to make it feel relevant, and I feel it was more distracting than conducive to the end they were trying to achieve. Um, as for the romance, it progressed of, of sorts. It progressed abundantly quickly. I didn't feel nearly as convinced as I did by seeing the slow seeping effect as we did in Phoenix, which worked to great effect in the astounding last scene. So this would be what I would say about Transit as regards our next film season of The Devil. Um, Daniel Kasman from Mubi made a great analogy, uh, sorry, a great point of comparison where he said these two films would make a great double feature, Transit and Season of the Devil, because they're both about seeing our current uh, situation reflected in events from the past. Season of the Devil is basically about Rodrigo Duterte um, and his uh, killings in the drug war and martial law, um, but reflected in the 1970s, a previous, um, previous dictatorship in the Philippines, um, this is four grueling black and white hours. Anyone who's seen one of Love Diaz's previous films will have an idea of what they're into in for in the sense that, you know, it's black and white, barely any camera movement, um, very, very slow paced. But this film, he takes it to another level in terms of the experimentation because it is entirely sung. It's been billed as a rock opera, but it's much more of a traditional opera. It's a, it's a lament um, in a lot of ways. I found that um, it's, there's a hypnotic effect to the way that the same sorts of songs and ideas keep getting repeated in this film. And as it goes on, I found that it built up in power. I found this devastating. Yeah, it was interesting because about 20 minutes into the film, I was a little bit dreading that, oh, this is... I was not sure that this was going to sustain itself, unlike the other Lev Diaz. This is actually quite different, I mean, to, um, to, to his earlier films. So, like, The Lady Who Waited, which was, I just thought, an absolutely sensational film. Was that two, two years ago? Um, but this, this is very much, as um, Chris said, very much about the sort of the embrace of the authoritarian. And um, it was, I thought it was the, the, the music actually does, it really does develop a, a um, rhythm. I mean, we, I'm sure you can remember, Chris, we're all going, la, 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 la. Yeah. I mean, that whole motif and just the motives of the different, the sort of voices and the sort of mix of vocality that happens between the sort of villages and their sort of song and the sort of the song of the, author, the, the authoritarian, which uh, I thought was a really interesting thing. And it, and it does actually build up in, into... Uh, into a, into a really interesting climax. It, it doesn't just become... So I was fearful it was going to become very didactic yeah. because it, it just seemed early on that it was, going to, uh, it was very much just going to be about a sort of metaphorical look at the Marcos, Marcos regime, um, having to look at how that reflects on Duterte. But it did actually, just through that, that, that musicality and the, and the great performances, it really did end up really producing something very, very profound, yeah. Oh my god, I just managed to get that tune out of my head and now it's back in my head again. So thank you for that. No, no, actually, no thank you. Because, gosh, that was annoying after a while. But uh, uh, to be honest, uh, it's, it's interesting in the sense because I think a lot of the experience of this movie will depend on how you kind of envisage the repetitive nature of it. And I think that's ag- actually a turning point in this movie about how you would experience the movie. Because for it does become sort of emotionally jarring if you're not with it after a point and you kind of start to roll your eyes a bit and be like okay you know it's very like repetitive but I think it's by design and I think in, in essentially it is annoying because it's interesting how it's actually set you know it's set in, it's shot in the jungles of Malaysia so and it's talking about a dictator called Narciso and you know there's a young poet in there who's talking about you know ideals and stuff so it does kind of feel heavy in the nose a while and you kind of start to question about whether it's, you know, what's the actual real-life relevance of it. But actually, it's all about how you would talk about the repetitive nature of it. If you can enjoy it, then it's actually quite a rewarding watch. That- yeah, um, it, it, it does... It's, yeah, as Farad said, instead of depicting Marcos, it has a literally two-faced dictator called Narciso. This film is very sort of fairy tale like um, It's not trying to make a didactic political statement so much as just to represent the raw grief of um, martial law and mass killing. And I think um, there's a real pure emotional simplicity to it that I think works with the song-like context. It's actually probably at this point my favourite film of the festival. 
Wow, so that is Season of the Devil, which I will now have to check out. I've avoided seeing a lot of the longer films, but I think this sounds absolutely abundantly worth it. Now, the next film we are talking about screen tonight, and we'll screen again tomorrow at the State Theatre and on Friday night at the Hayden Orpheum, and that is Aga. It is a new film from two Bulgarian filmmakers uh, who have just arrived in Sydney to present their film, and it is absolutely beautiful. It is set in the Arctic uh, with members of the Yakut community, and it tells the story of a couple who have to uh, who have the daughter has long since left, and the father will not forgive her for this. And it tells a story of forgiveness and their relationship. Now, first and foremost, this film is abundantly beautiful. We saw Malignant last year, filmed in a quite remote wilderness, and to see the images that were captured similarly to this, they had to cover the camera with quite a number of things to make sure it didn't freeze. But to see the vistas that are, were captured were absolutely, absolutely beautiful. And another thing I will say about this film, the sense of abundant realism, where you have professional actors, but you also have members of the local community filling in as drivers and whatnot, and it lends it a real air that you are actually in this absolutely marvellous place. That is Aga. Yeah, Aga is interesting in the sense, uh, it's definitely one of the most beautifully shot movies, and it's actually screening in the comp, which is, very good because I think it's one of my favorite movies from the comp this year, and it's, it's beautiful in the sense of how it sets the scene. And you, there are not many movies this year in the comp that actually have the social setting and the context as an actual character, which take you along in this movie. So I think in that sensibility, where if you want to be transported to a new world and you want to enjoy the setting and what role it plays and actually your experience with the movie, Arg is a really beautiful one. And that is Arga. The next thing we are talking about was caught yesterday evening, and that is Touch Me Not. Yeah, well, uh, this film won the Berlin Golden Bear. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a controversial decision, to say the least. Um, this is an experimental documentary or experimental fiction film, somewhere in between, where um, it's an exploration of intimacy and sexuality, where um, a character interviews or interacts with a bunch of um, people who have sort of unusual perspectives on sexuality, like um, a man with muscular atrophy who um, is uh, talks about how he's able to enjoy sex um, despite his, his disability and actually doesn't care and goes against what a lot of people would project on him, um, as well as a transgender, uh, sorry, a transgender woman who's an escort and... Um, people who help with um, intimacy teaching. But the problem with this film for me is that the director has made it a film about themselves and there's a mixture of professional actors and these real people whose stories are interesting and frequently moving. But there's two problems with this approach for me. The first is that you can always tell who's an actor and who's genuine um, because the acting, the scripted actor material is so amateurish and so artsy and just looks so shallow compared to the actual profundity of real people's experiences. And the second way that this is, um, I feel, in some ways disgusting is that the director is using these real people and their real stories to make a story about, oh, this is myself and my own... Um, issues with intimacy, which seems like artistic narcissism at its very worst. And I think Virat hated it even more than I did. I, I think it's one of the sort of least liked movies out of me for the entire lineup, mainly because there's something basically sort of foul about this movie. And, and I don't mean that because it's talking about intimacy and it's talking about issues which are controversial. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I, I welcome the actual subject matter of this movie what I had issues with how the matter was actually presented and how the director chose to go about uh, presenting this matter in a very self-conscious and arrogant way it's a very arrogant film in the way about it's talking about supposedly opening up discussion points and barriers about how intimacy can be seen in the wider public and opening up discussion points but it instead becomes this very judgmental sort of didactic commentary about look this is the way you should engage with intimacy to begin with, which is very... I had issues with that. All right. Uh, we will be talking about more films in a moment, but first, Stephen, I would like to ask you... Uh, you've seen a few different films to the ones we've caught, and particularly the ones I've caught. I'd like to ask you what are your, some of your highlights of the festival so far. 
Well, as I said, mentioned before, Transit, so we get to disagree on that. But um, Scary Mother, I thought that Georgian film was a really fascinating film. I mean, and also um, Arc of Desitario, I thought it was a really interesting Italian film. Um, I think both of those were... I think I, 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 I didn't know much about this, um, the Italian film, and I thought it really... Um, I was very... I was, it, it, luckily, it's not... There was an era where I think Italian over, did the overdid the quirky films and or they overdid the sort of fabulous nature, but this is a really interesting sort of like playfulness, sort of almost like a sort of Calvino-like sort of fable of this um, this, this this mayor and this sort of str- strange story of um, this um, of him going to the prison and the sort of the, the, these characters just really it, it actually it was very uplifting, but it, it didn't sort of to me it didn't sort of ooze with that over sentimentality, which is you know which is very much part of um, you know Cinema Paradiso or um, Life Is Beautiful. That so I think it actually really did sort of muse on, muse on something. Um, but, yeah, I, that was that. And I, and I really thought Scary Mother was interesting. And, and it would be interesting to see because there may well be some disagreement, but I just really thought that really interesting sort of the, the writer trying to exist outside the sort of bourgeois society. I just thought it was a really interesting thing of, you know, of, of that challenge. And I thought, it, yeah, it, I thought it played that line. It could have easily gone either too safe or too risky. Anyhow, I'll let... What, yeah, I, I saw Scary Mother as well, and it reminded me of the fact that, you know, um, I'm so glad that uh, I gave up on writing when I did, because, you know... <laughs> Don't say that for us! <laughs> then, uh, eventually, like, you know, because it reminded me of my struggles to try to finish a novel and try to literally lock myself in a room uh, for hours on end and not be social and f- actually see myself a different person at some point, where you, tr- you really see that you've transformed yourself into this, you know, rightly abode that you... And you deserve some kind of, you know being put on a pedestal because you've gone through this process. But uh, one of the films that I saw that I think other people are catching tomorrow is Wajib, which is actually one of my favourites in the festival so far. Uh, it's, it took me by surprise because it's a very warm film. It's very much a film like Jafar Panahi. It's a very Panahi-like film. It's basically a film set in uh, really interesting times. Uh, and it's basically a father-son combo who have to go and do their duty of uh, distributing wedding cards for their, the, a wedding that's happening. And to that, you get to find out more about the family. It's a really interesting film, but I'll wait till other people see it and then comment more about it. The next film we are talking about is one of the big ones out of Sundance and one of the festival films, which is The Miseducation of Cameron Post. This is a tricky one, a very tricky one. This is the one, I think, more than any other the festival, I've had to stop and wait a few days and really contemplate how I feel about this movie. It is about a group of teens, uh, one of whom is played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who is sent to a quote-unquote gay conversion clan to be quote-unquote cured. It's a very confronting film in some senses. It is also, and avowedly so, a comic film, and in other ways it is, it is a very derivative film of films like The Poet Society, and to an extent One Flew of the Cougar's Nest, and at times it is a jumble of all three. There, This film commends itself for a few things. The amazing performances from Jennifer L., Moretz, and John Gallagher Jr. in one of the most conflicted characters who is regretfully not explored, and this is the biggest drawback of the film. They have a very strong focus on the group dynamic, which is interesting, but when it comes to individual characters, none are drawn to the same extent as Ethan Hawke's character in Dead Poets Society, or as any of the characters that we so strongly remember being evinced in the likes of Cuckoo's Nest. So it is an interesting film, it is an engaging film, it is a thought-provoking film, which takes goes to places, films that even deal with these subject matters generally don't do, even though in many senses it is an abundantly flawed film. The last film we're going to be talking about in the short time we have left before we move to our podcast segment is Terra Nullius. Oh, man. Okay. Um, Terra Nullius makes sense as a gallery installation piece, which is how it was commissioned and how you can see it at Acme in Melbourne, because it's basically the same thing over and over again. You could look at it for five minutes and go, ah, ha, ha, that's pretty amusing, then walk away and then walk back and see it doing something similar and go, ah, still at it. Oh, that's, that's cute. But sitting down and watching this in, in a sitting is torture because it's, it's basically... Um, Old Australian films edited together, um, sometimes with characters from other films superimposed onto footage from another, um, and cheap video effects. They're, they're actually pretty well executed. I shouldn't call them cheap, but what the film comes down to at the end of the day is people that Greens voters like killing people that Liberal voters like. Um, and it sounds terrible. The relentless juven- juvenility of this just becomes wearying for me. Uh, what did you think, Virat? It's interesting to compare the season with the devil, actually, because, you know, you, you talk about what's actually heavy on the nose politically and what actually has kind of 
actual value when you're talking making a political statement or you're making a movie which actually has something to say in terms of artistic merit than just making a political statement. And I think this is where Tardinelli's kind of fails because it's actually veering into the territory where it just exists because it's trying to make a statement and not being a movie. So that is Terra Nullius. We will be back on Sunday between 12 and 1 p.m. talking more about the City Film Festival. You can also, we'll be continuing the discussion at our podcast, Film Fight Club. Look us up at the 2SER site or podcasts everywhere. More movies to come. Go on iTunes and or wherever. Listen to the rest. Yeah, we're just going to be talking more about all the things we've seen. And, oh, come join us at the Hub. And it's pretty great here. And we just see more and more films. And, yeah, come join us, get some tickets. Before our brains melt. Yeah, and at City Film, SFF.org.au. And, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be continuing the conversation in a moment. This has been Glenn Fowler and Chris Evans for the Enjoy Movies. Good night. Ah! And we are back on the Sydney Film Festival Extended Edition <laughs> podcast at The Hub. You have just kept going with more and more and more movies. Oh, dear me. The next one we are talking about is one I have not seen. I wish I had. I saw Beirut. I will get to that later. Not a great movie by any means, but it is one of the late editions, and that is the highly anticipated Cold War. Um... I think actually, let's let Virat start on this one because I think he liked it more than I did. Uh, yeah, it's 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 one of my absolute favorites so far. It's it's oh my god, it's 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 very short. I mean, uh, uh, let's begin with that. Actually, it's eighty-four minutes, I think, which is surprising because it doesn't feel like eighty-four minutes. It's a very immersive experience, and it's directed by Paolo. Uh, Paolo, 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 yeah, let's, it's Chris. Uh, I am definitely. My pronunciation is definitely wrong. Yeah, mine, mine too, because I'm tongue twisting right now. Pavlikovsky? Yeah, Powell. There you go. It's directed by two P's, Powell and the other P. Uh, and uh, it's it's beautiful in the sense it's the way it's shot. Firstly, let's talk about the framing of this movie. It's in full three aspect ratio. Oh no! Stop! 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 We're done! We're done! If, if anyone saw the film Ida, it's the same director as that and similar visual style, where it's in 4x3 and black and white, and often the characters have a lot of headroom, though it's less extreme in this film and more traditional in the framing. That film was pretty out there in how it looked. So the Polish films at this festival are very hit and miss, from what it seems. We had Tower of Bright Day earlier. It was probably still my least favorite of the festival. This is so much better than Tower of Bright Day. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Now, this is like a, a very bright day. The tower was a pretty dark day, but this is like a very bright day. But on a, okay, no, no, uh, because I need to do this film justice, honestly. This is a beautiful film in the sense, this is basically a tragic love story said during the time of the Cold War. I know that premise makes it sound like, oh my God, rolling my eyes, this is another love story said during Cold War times, but it's not. Actually, it's a beautiful... Okay, this is the movie which is what La La Land could have been. And this is what I've been talking in my head. It's a beautiful tale of two people where the quest of coming together has more emotional undercurrent and has more value than when they're actually together. So those people, when they come together and actually are together, are doomed to be apart. Not because of any social circumstances, but that actually are not a good fit for each other. But then they realize that they can't live apart because they're the only two people who can stand each other in the, in the way anyway. So it's a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting way to tell a love story, which is really interesting. It crosses over timelines and across borders. It takes place, I think, between about 1945 and 1970. Um, but it's very fast-paced, and but also very minimalistic. You are only you are given the bare minimum of what you need to know about these characters, their motivations, their love for each other, and you're left to fill in the rest, um, which just keeps the movie moving along at such a fast rate. The production design is absolutely beautiful, and the the framing, my god, like it's such a gorgeous film. I think um, Palace Films have distribution rights, so I think we can delve deeper into this film later this year. But- uh- Yes. Now, in terms of the next film, uh, we want to talk about my 20th century. Stephen. Now, I'm uh, obviously uh, on Body on Soul was the film which um, won the the prize at the Sydney Film Festival last year, and so it was really interesting to see one of her films in the 19, early, early 80s. I thought this was a really beautifully shot film. I mean, it really used a lot of the the um, the, the, um, the aesthetics of silent film, and had a really interesting sort of story of these the, the two the two twins. And uh, and then, and sort of that was drawn then into the sort of the narrative narrative arc of the 20th century of the sort of scientific development, but yeah, it's a, it was a it's a really enchanting film, and I just just thought that um, it's, it's certainly it's, it's certainly I mean I, I'm not really familiar with a lot of a lot of her work, but it's, it certainly got me wanting to go out and um, catch a lot more of her films. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a good follow-up to talking about this after my after Cold War because they're both four by three black and white films um, trying to recreate the aesthetics of cinema movements in the past. Oh, where where was I during this? Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, um, you were probably watching. Uh, I'm, I'm trying. I was looking Beirut. Yeah, Beirut, or something with John Hamm in it. But uh, yeah, you can take your ham sandwiches while we enjoy our cinema arts with an E on the end. I, 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 I've seen, there's been art, I've seen art. <laughs> and there's just an absolutely fabulous scene too where you have, um, you know, you know those, those old circular um, um, lecture halls, the old traditional yeah. ones like in Frankenstein, oh, yeah. where you have this, this, this male protagonist trying to, 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 to this full, full female audience to, you know, to prove that um, female, about female sexuality and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that, 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 that females are not a rational subject. It's an absolutely hilarious Defending the four-three aspect ratio because we've just like you know bombarded that over. The, it's interesting in the sense at how your eyes track subjects in a four-three aspect yeah. ratio. It's so much more interesting to see things outside in the background and in like corner of the edges than in a normal sort of widescreen sense, which is what you don't notice. Which is why I think Cold War and both my 20th century are interesting because there's so much happening in the foreground and background in contrast in every scene and you can track them visually in yeah and one of the key pleasures of season of the devil as well was tracking people around that big four by three ratio there really is something to it but going back to my 20th century it's such a quirky film um as steve just mentioned we had that that um little scene about um feminists being mansplained to the film is just so full of weird little um interludes like that like scenes about animals there's a re- yeah, there's a recurring bit about stars in the sky which come down and talk to people and direct them. Um, there's, yeah, yeah the recurring um, elements of history in the 20th century, like tracking the development of, of cinema and um, paralleling that with the story of, yeah, and the telegram and, and the light with Thomas Edison. And it's paralleling that with um, the story of two sisters who were divided and traveling divided across Europe. Yeah, and divided by class. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, so that is my 20th century. Um, I was seeing the hammy movie Beirut, which I mentioned a couple of times. I should just touch base. It is a thriller, which is in cinemas a couple of weeks, starring John Hamm, Dean Norris of Breaking Bad fame, Rosamund Pike, the latter two of whom are outstanding actors who got very, very thankless roles. Um, yeah, look, this is a abundantly silly movie and avowedly silly only to a certain extent. Um, it has the unusual effect of what I think um, uniting Lebanon, Israel and possibly the Palestinian Authority in agreements in their objection to this movie which depicts each of these groups um, not especially realistically or well. Um, it's about a negotiator. It makes... Uh, there's not a lot of negotiation except for him holding guns to people's head. There is one great negotiating scene but they basically make you wait the entire movie for it. John Hamm is a great actor. He's a great comic actor. I wish he'd do more comedy and Look, uh, it was, if you don't take it all seriously, but he could still do a lot better than a film like this. That was Beirut. You mean he doesn't ham his way through this uh, performance? There is one scene where he puts on sunglasses and walks down an airstrip where no one really knows where. It didn't make sense because the airstrip went nowhere, but he just does it because that's de- that needs to happen in the film like this. You mean like this guy from CSI Miami, you know, putting on glasses, yeah, and the background music? A pretty oh god you Dave, David Caruso yeah, he, yeah yes yes Dave, yeah he's, he's pulled a, oh that, that that ran for ten seasons guys ten seasons that was Beirut the next film we are talking about is a Argentinian period piece called Zama yeah I, I was a little disappointed by this film I mean I think it's interesting and but I think I mean it's about this um, colonial administrator um, this magistrate called um, Zama. Um, now his life's quite... It's all about the sort of banality of his existence. But at the same time, the sort of... Um, as much as... It's really hard to empathise with him, but just considering the position that he's in and he's allowed to, you know, sign all these um, all the natives into slavery and he has all these women on the side that he so desires. So as much as he wants to get this transfer back to Spain and then, you know, he's just bureaucratically always... I'm frustrated from able to be able to achieve this by all these sort of um, things that are happening outside of his control. I, I just, I just found it frustrating. I mean, it did pick up, but I just, I just, I, I had difficulty thinking it really had anything weighty to really think about it this way. Zama is what if Sacha Baron Cohen's The Dictator would have been a serious dramatic movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, that was except for that one joke at the very beginning, which I will not repeat in polite company. Uh, that was a terrible film, my God. Yeah, yeah, but also like you have to really reimagine the tone of it and see if you know 
if Sasha Baron Cohen in that way would be playing a tragic character and he saw himself as a tragic character, this is what Zama would have been because I think the there is so much sort of self-lament which is just added on to and how Zama feels about oh my god, the weight of the world is on my dictatorial shoulders <laughs> except it's not and he's got a pretty cushy life. <laughs> I mean... I mean, the only thing I thought was it does pick up, but I mean, there's, there's films like Aguirre, Wrath of God, and um, more recently that Spanish film Gold, that I think have done this much better at looking at just that sort of the, the destructiveness of that sort of fantasy of your own sort of superiority. Mm. I agree. I think Aguirre, for example, I haven't seen Gold, but Aguirre is a much uh, more effective film, I think. Um, I admired the sound design and the images in this film, though. Um, I think it, it creates a very kind of dreamy, strange atmosphere where you're a little bit confused as to what's going on to try and put you in his headspace as he unravels, which I think the filmmaking and the technique is the most interesting thing about the film. Um, I think it's good, but uh, I wasn't as blown away by it as I was hoping to be after reading some of the early reactions. Not shorted for three. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I, I might have to watch it now. That is Zama. <laughs> and the next film we are talking about briefly is What Keeps You Alive, which I just saw when everyone else was seeing Shoplifters. This is part of the Freak Me Out strand. It is a story of a couple who go to a cabin in the woods, and in the first 20 minutes there is a very sharp about turn in the story, and things escalate from there. It is not a typical horror in that the monster, in a manner I, I would typically object to a monster being, or anything of that sort, being revealed too early in the piece. That certainly happens here, but it is done to excellent effect. It is a well, psycho thriller. Um, this is a 98-minute film. It could just as well have been 78 minutes. The reason for this is that it ends with um, a character doing something abundantly stupid, which just to progress and prolong the narrative, and it tra- took what was originally a quite clever thriller, save the one particular character having to appear in every single sequence with a glass of wine for no apparent reason, and then uh, went in, unfortunately, towards the end, a not-so-great direction, but otherwise, um, it was a worthy addition to a very interesting Freak Me Out program. The next song we would like to talk about is Samui Song. Samoy Song is great. Um, it's uh, Thai kind of noir from Penek Radnarung. If you saw his uh, film... Uh, headshot. It's a similar kind of feel to that. It's about a woman who um, hires a contract killer to try and get out of a terrible marriage she's stuck in where she's um, may essentially enslaved to a cult leader that her husband is a financial benefactor to. And it is a film that switches between characters and perspectives as um, this story kind of slowly comes together. Um, but all the characters and their motivations I think are really well drawn um, and I think it has a hypnotic kind of quality to it. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. What do you guys think? Yeah, some of you think it's great. And I, and I think we haven't had good noirs uh, in, in the program that, ma- you know, that many. So uh, it's really interesting in that sense. And actually that, that sort of tie context and background really give it some kind of gravitas which and different kind of context, which I wasn't aware of. So I think I was trying to decode you know, the, the world as well as enjoy the stylistics of noir. So it just added something different to my liking. And the, the style is so beautiful. The, the style is beautiful. Um, I didn't take to the ending so well. I felt it was a bit of a twist. I didn't feel they... I mean, it was done for shock effect rather than something that was intrinsic or organic to the actual story. I think it wasn't... Yeah, I wasn't completely sold on it, but it did add a level of interest and did um, that reflected on, I think, the situation the characters were in. So even though I don't think it was the right way to end the movie, I appreciate what Rudnarung was trying to do. Uh, we have two films left we'll be talking about on this podcast, the first of which is the new John Cho Depromising film, Searching. It takes place entirely on a computer screen, and it's about a, hus- a father searching for his missing daughter. Uh, this is a detective thriller and quite a twisty, turny one at that. There's a few um, annoying coincidences and one very bad piece of clunky exposition, but it is one that is rewarding for repeat viewing because it intersperses its clues uh, very well throughout. The film festivals are great because often there are directors here and directors keen to hear people's views on film. The director, sorry, the producer actually got in touch with me to talk about um, uh, my views on the film and my review, and he actually pointed out to me some things I didn't notice and that there are some, without ruining anything, there are some really intricate clues tied into some encounters which uh, make this film worth of watching in repeat time. It will come out shortly in cinemas. The last thing I'll say about it is simply that the style of having to watch a computer screen um, interminably may seem tiring. It's actually not. It's actually abundantly familiar and works intrinsically well to the story they were trying to tell. The last one we are talking about during this podcast is Censored. 
Okay, this is an interesting one. Um, filmmaker Sari Braithwaite has put together uh, clips from all the films that were... Um, she hasn't included every film, but she's gone through every film that um, the footage was cut from between 1948 and 1971. She's gone through an archive available to the public of that f- excised footage, and she's scanned that footage and edited it together to make a documentary. Um, this is a strange one. It goes in a direction I didn't expect. I thought this was going to be sort of like a fun romp through schlocky uh, material, but it turns out to be a treatise on the male gaze. Um, I found that it comes to conclusions that I think would be interesting as the starting point for a more deep examination, but as it was, I found it a little bit obvious. Um, I'd like to hear what Virat has to say, and then I'll continue the conversation. Uh, okay. Oh, God. Uh, it's difficult to talk about this movie but without seeming like an absolute prick. So I will pre- preface the fact that I will come across as a prick, and I'm sorry about that. The fact is, the problem with this film, in, in essence, is that it preempts the actual hypotheses or its solution without actually uncovering anything. I think the process of filmmaking, or even when you're making a documentary, if you already know where you want to reach, and you're predetermined to make that conclusion, it makes the, the process laborious and the viewing process is quite laborious because you already know what the process is going to be about if the film is about the male gaze and depicting the male gaze in a certain kind of way the conclusions it'll reach are not astounding or you know out of the world they are already predetermined and all right and i found the uh another way uh, yeah i agree with what virat's saying um it's a little bit like supersize me. You know, you eat McDonald's for, a, you know, nothing but McDonald's. You know that you're going to end up getting fat. Um, if you watch only footage from, fil- you know, that's been cut from films, yeah, you're going to be disgusted by any displays of sex and violence. And, you'll, yeah, the main point of this film is that she notices the patterns of the way that sex and violence are depicted on screen. Um, but I don't think it's news that that the past, the recent past even, you know, 45 years ago, almost 50 years ago, there are a lot of shocking um, kind of, by our current standards, opinions and perspectives around. I don't think that that's really news to anyone. And so in a way it seems kind of not that interesting to make this kind of project from material from the past. I think it would be way more interesting if she edited together footage from films in the recent history. So she she could be saying, look at how, um, look at where we are today and look at how um, we're still perpetrate, you know, what's the purpose of the um, depicting sex and violence in this very masculine, aggressive way. Um, I will say, though, that I thought back to this film when I saw Once Upon a Time in America and um, was recently at, on, at George Street Cinemas after having watched Censored and being really alienated and, I think, repulsed by the way that rape was depicted. So it made me think, yeah, she definitely has a point about the people who create films and the reason we allow certain perspectives to be put forward in cinema and celebrate them. But I don't think that the film goes deep enough for this to be satisfying as a documentary in its own right. And I question the purpose of um, making this film from that material in the first place. Um, I actually very interested to hear you did an interview with Sarah. I think it's up on the Cellular Dreams page too. Yes, I did. I, I found her perspective interesting. Um, it definitely made me think deeper about the film than I did after the first viewing. So if anyone's seen the film, I'd encourage them to listen to her, the interview. I do too. That is censored. Uh, we will be back on Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. talking more about the Sydney Film Festival. Uh, just while, in our last few, few moments, Stephen, uh, we've got a few days left of the festival. What are you seeing next? Well, it's going to be a marathon Sunday. I mean, Wild Pear Tree, um, we've got Shoplifters, which um, some of you have already had the privilege to, to see. Um, there's also Burning, which was a film um, based on a, a Murakami um, short story, which is one of the films that one of the, one of the critics really we've got this really very powerful reception from a lot of the critics um, coming out of Cannes. Um, and there's also the Edward Yang four-hour. So yeah. I haven't seen enough four-hour films, so I thought I've got to see a three four-hour films, or you haven't been to a film festival. Um, um, I will be doing The Kindergarten Teacher and um, American Animals. I was, was going to ask for right next up, but I will preempt it slightly because I know we're doing an Iranian double on Friday, which will be Three Faces and Pig. Yeah, look, I love my Iranian cinema, and... Uh, 
I, I'm, I've missed it. I've, I've, I think there's part of my soul that misses Iranian cinema because I feel they do human drama so well. And there's something very real and very grounded about them. So I'm doing Yes, Three Faces and uh, A Pig, which is going to be fantastic. But also I'm looking forward to all the Khan picks, which I'm yet to watch, which have been great. Casper Noah's Climax, which I'm ending my Sydney Film Festival experience with. There's a joke in there, ending <laughs> it with Climax, but I'm not going to make it because I think it's quite obvious. But also, um, thankfully, I'm able to catch Burning and Girl the camera deal winner thankfully because of the popular de- back by popular demand sessions girl, girl isn't in popular demand girl isn't in popular demand girl's really hard to catch i'm tossing up whether i'll see burning on thursday or on the monday by popular demand session um but either way we'll be able to review it in our final sydney film wrap up next wednesday um i'm also seeing the image book tomorrow godard's new experimental film i'm really looking forward to that um i'm hoping for some walkouts but probably anyone who's going to that one knows what they're in for. I, I, I definitely think so. Please do check out the additional uh, film screening Monday through Wednesday. Some of the highlights from the festival will be having those screenings for those who just couldn't quite make it or couldn't quite fit it into their schedules. I think going by late Goddard standards, Chris and I might be the only two people in that image book screening. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I know a few paints who are I going. Think, I think we'll see the, the usual suspects when it comes to Sydney auteur film appreciation. Very much so. You'll know the real snobs in the Goddard screening, and you'll know how to point them out. Yeah, yeah. So, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a lot of fun talking about the festival. We'll have to be back on for more festivals. It may not be as hectic and crazy as the Sydney, yeah. but um, there will be more to come. Oh, thank you. I mean, yes. It's, um, thanks, thanks for having me on the show, and it'd be great to actually have a good night's sleep. I mean, not having five films or four films. And, it's just, and you know, after Monday, I'm going to feel liberated. I mean, after, you know, having ten days of intense... Activity staring at staring at this uh, massive screen for you know and all, all seems like an enormous amount of time. Oh, um, good night. I haven't slept since the Matter killed Don Quixote, so I'm, <laughs> I've lost all track of just everything. Honestly, like I w- part of me will miss it because I wouldn't know what to do. Like I, I, you know, I wouldn't know how to fill my time in and like what a normal day feels like. It's like it's a one day. It's an extended one day throughout two weeks. Don't we do this all year? You, no, but really, the City Film Festival takes it up to another level of crazy, where you become a film robot who knows not what to do except to just watch more film after film after film, and you get into a rhythm. It's must a see more. Must see more films. I'm a guy from Upgrade. The, sprint, the sprinting between venues. You have this yeah. thing where you go, oh, I've got 10 minutes between films. I've got to run yeah. from here all the way to Opera Keys. And I've got, got to race through all the vivid crowd. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a science from travelling from Dandy Newtown to Event Cinema's George Street to the State <laughs> Theatre to New Opera Keys to Randwick. To the Hayden and Orpheum Cremine. Oh, very much oh, so. Yeah. The M30 is good, but there's, there's other ways. Look, we just come across as like weird sadists now that we're like yeah. punishing <laughs> ourselves to like putting ourselves through this kind of routine. But we actually do like it. Maybe we are saying this. Who knows? It's our, it's our, it's our exercise. <laughs> so, guys, it's been fun, and we'll be back for more and more Sydney Film Festival, more and more crisis. Black Klansman, oh my god. Yeah, and The Wild Pear Tree. And uh, I don't know, I think that a lot of the best films are yet to come. So, um, may the films continue to be injected into our eyeballs hour by hour. May the films be with you. May the drugs be with you. Or films. Drugs or films. Climax? Uh, <laughs> Climax? Film as drug? La 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 la